Take your Bibles as we prepare to uh, have our monthly Bible Q&A. One of the neat things about the uh, Bible Q&A is the opportunity for youngsters to turn in questions, and that happens every month, several times, uh, and I think we have three or four tonight from uh, uh, age 8 or age 10 or etc., and uh, sometimes you might recognize them by the question, sometimes uh, you won't, but this first one is uh, from a young man wrestling with the issue, and it is, uh, where was sin before it came into the world? And uh, the reason that kind of question might be asked is, is if the assumption is that sin is a person or sin is a substance or sin is an entity, none of which is really true. Uh, it's, it's hard probably for an eight-year-old eight to completely grasp what is sin. If it's not something concrete, tangible, a person, etc., uh, if it's not an entity or a substance, uh, it's a concept. And how, how do you, as an eight-year-old, grasp a concept? John tells us in 1 John that sin is lawlessness. That is, sin is breaking God's law. It is doing something against God. So the answer to your question, where was sin before it came into the world? There was no sin until the first sin that entered is described in uh, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, when Satan, Lucifer chose to rebel against God, and he drew one-third of the angels with him, and they joined in that rebellion. So that is the entrance of sin into the universe. Uh, Sin in the world came very clearly from Genesis chapter 3, and what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 came through the sin of Adam. And Paul, sort of giving a commentary on that, says that that is when death entered the human race uh, because uh, sin brought death. So there was no such thing as sin. Sin wasn't somewhere hiding before it came into the world. It wasn't a person or a thing, uh, an object. Uh, sin was, is, is a concept. It is a, a breaking the law of God, rebellion against God. Satan brought it into the universe. Adam brought it into planet Earth and the human race. And since that time, sin has been a part of our existence and will continue to be t- so until eternity. So hope that helps. It's, it's, it's a great question, and, and uh, I know your parents are here with you tonight, so if some of the words I used didn't make sense, they'll help, help you work through those, and, and thanks for asking that question. All right, next question says this, Pastor Brian, given the gospel accounts of Peter's denial, especially Matthew and John, whose courtyard did this take place in? The courtyard of Annas or of Caiaphas? Now, let me give a little background. This is a great question, by the way. I don't know who who turned this in, but this is really a great question. Uh, Because if you read the gospel accounts closely, John tells us, and only John, you can can jot down notes if you want to. We won't turn back and forth to all four of the gospels. But John 18, 17 tells us that Jesus' first trial was before Annas, which was interesting because Annas was not the high priest at that time, but he is called in the Gospels the high priest, which should raise the question, if he wasn't the high priest, then why is he called the high priest? And the answer is this. Caiaphas was actually the ruling high priest at the time. Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. Annas had been the high priest, but the Roman government, because of the power of that position, did not let any man stay in it too long. And in fact, 
The position was often open to bartering. It would be bought, purchased behind the scenes. It was not at all how the law of God intended that office to be, the office of high priest. But Annas had been the high priest, and he had quite a bit of power and influence among the Jewish people, which the Romans didn't like. So through a series of circumstances, eventually Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, became the high priest. So the, the technical correct answer to the question, who was high priest when Jesus was crucified, is Caiaphas. And he is called the high priest, but Annas is also called the high priest because everybody knew in that day, in that culture, in that setting, everybody knew who wielded the power and who had the control of the office. And it was not Caiaphas, the son-in-law. It was Annas, the father-in-law. And so Jesus was first taken to Annas to be tried. And after that trial, he was sent bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, who was the official ruling high priest at the time, who finally pronounced judgment on Jesus. Now, if you read the four gospel accounts closely, and I read all four of those accounts of this this section, uh, this story of Jesus' life, I read them several times this afternoon because they, they can be very confusing. But the first trial was before Annas, and the first denial that Peter uttered was before Annas. And probably, and I say only probably because the wording is difficult to know, probably the next two were before Annas, possibly, or maybe when Jesus was before Caiaphas. But here's the interesting thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke placed the denials of Peter in the courtyard of Caiaphas. So how do we resolve this? Because the first one was clearly in the courtyard of Annas. And possibly the next two, but even if you say, well, the next two were in the courtyard of Caiaphas, you still have one before Annas, two before Caiaphas, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke place all three before Caiaphas. What's the solution? Well, as I read and reread and so forth, uh, I think here is a plausible explanation. I think in light of even the geography of Israel today, those of you who have been to Israel know when we go to the Jewish quarter, there is a common courtyard right there in the Jewish quarter. A number of you have been in that courtyard. A lot of uh, the apartments, the residences uh, in the Jewish quarter share the same courtyard. Uh, We know from uh, geographical, from archaeological records that in the first century is the same way. We know the residences of, or at least the area where the residences of the priests and the high priests were. And the answer to this question, I believe, I'm fairly confident, is that it's very likely that the houses, or not houses like you think of them, and I think of a house, but the residence, more like an apartment, it's likely that the houses of both Annas and Caiaphas shared a common courtyard. And so Peter was in that courtyard, and in fact, one of the Gospels, when you read it, it says Peter gave his first denial. Then they transferred Jesus from Annas to Caiaphas, but Peter stayed back and continued to warm himself by the fire, and then he uttered the other two denials, which Matthew, Mark, and Luke placed at the courtyard of Caiaphas. Well, if he never left the courtyard of Annas and stayed at the fire to warm himself, and yet it is said that he made those denials in the courtyard of Caiaphas, The only solution is that the courtyard of Caiaphas, the courtyard of Annas, was the same courtyard. 
And that is by no means a stretch, even again with the, with the uh, geography and the land of Israel today and the archaeological evidence of the geography in that day, how the houses were built, etc. And since Annas had been the high priest, Caiaphas is the new high priest, it would make sense they are in close proximity because, as I said, even though Caiaphas was official, Annas was the real power, so he wanted his son-in-law close so he could give him the input necessary for ruling from that position. So all that to say... Uh, your question is, whose courtyard did this take place in, Annas' courtyard or Caiaphas? I think the answer is both. I think it was a shared courtyard, a common courtyard, and it all took place right there. And Jesus was simply transferred from one residence, Annas, over to Caiaphas. But the gospel account does say Peter did not move. He, he didn't go along. He stayed behind to warm himself. And Peter had been following and it's doubtful that just to stay warm, he would not have continued to follow if Jesus had been taken across town to the household of Caiaphas. So I think that's the solution to the question. It's a very, very good one. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 11 for the next question. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this question is one that comes up every now and then because this is a difficult passage. And the question is very simple, is this. Uh, the issue of head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11, is it cultural? Um, and let me just get a few thoughts on this. First of all, I would say that probably the majority view within conservative Christianity, okay, I'm not talking about liberal uh, Christianity, but within sort of our circle, conservative biblical Christianity, I think the majority view is that it is cultural. So I want to state that up front because whenever I take a position that is not the majority view of conservative biblical scholars, uh, for whom I have a great deal of respect and appreciation, it always makes me nervous when I go a different direction. But um, if the evidence just is not compelling to, to me, I have to go the direction I believe the evidence leads. So I want to state up front that I think the majority view within conservative biblical Christianity is that the issue of head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11 is cultural. And one of the reasons why I think most hold that view is because they assume, and this is wrongly assume, that Paul is telling women to wear a hat when they, just to wear a hat. If you go out shopping, you wear a hat. You go to church, you wear a hat. In your home, you wear a hat. And so they say, that just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't fit. That must have been something cultural. You go out and you, you go out in society, you wear a hat, etc. The problem with that is that Paul is very specific in this context as to the, the parameters of what he is addressing. In 1 Corinthians 11, he is addressing the church family coming together for their corporate worship. In fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, he gives instructions on their celebration together around the Lord's table. And he actually even uses the phrase, he says, you come together, verse 20, therefore when you come together in one place. So he's not talking about the church meeting in their homes for what we might call prayer groups or Bible studies. Or He is talking about the entire church family coming together in one place. Okay, We would call that corporate worship. 
It would be like our Sundays, okay? So that is what he is addressing here in chapter 11. And then in the issue of the head covering, he specifies as to the parameters he has in mind on the head covering when he says this in verse 4, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So those two specifics are, in my mind, very important that Paul is addressing the church coming together in one place, corporate worship, and a woman praying or prophesying. Now, you know enough about Scripture to know that a woman getting up in front of church to lead in prayer or prophesy would not be the norm. Because in 1 Timothy 2, Paul specifically says... Uh, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That passage um, sets forth God's design for men to be shepherds, elders, pastors. Therefore, they are the ones who would lead the congregation in prayer, in proclaiming Scripture. So what I think Paul is saying, again, this is a very minority view, so you can wrestle with the data. What I think Paul is saying is this. When the church comes together for corporate worship, on the rare occasion, if for some reason, and I can think of some reasons why that might be the case, but if for some reason a, a, the leadership of the church, the elders of the church, were to have a woman lead the congregation in prayer or share from Scripture, she should cover her head to visibly, physically demonstrate that she, uh, Paul calls it a symbol of authority here in this passage, that she is not trying to usurp the God's authority of, of structure within the church of male leadership, nor is she trying to usurp leadership from the men who are the shepherds in the church. It is a physical, visible symbol of authority that she is in submission to God's authority and she is in submission to the authority of the men who are the shepherds and leaders of the church. I think that's what Paul is saying. So I don't think it's cultural. I think it's addressing a rare circumstance uh, and and I, think that's, I think that's what he has in mind. I, I was in one setting on one occasion where I, I'm almost certain this was practiced, though it wasn't stated. But let me explain. I was at a men's conference one time with hundreds of men, actually thousands of men. And this conference addressed what it means to be a man of God, uh, being a man of prayer, being a man of the Word. And there were several sessions, Friday night, Saturday, all throughout the day. One of the sessions was, what does it mean to be a man of God in relationship to your wife if you're married? What, what does a godly man look like? And so the speaker, and throughout this weekend, we had men come in and speak on these various topics. And the speaker got up and he began to speak on what, what a godly man looks like, what it means to be a godly man in relation to your wife. How to shepherd your wife, encourage your wife, love your wife, etc. And part of the way through his talk... This man said, now, you know, man, I've been kind of sharing with you, uh, but I'm a man. And as a man, maybe I, I don't have all the insights that your wife would have. You know, I can get up here and tell you how to love your wife, but what's most important is, is what your wife tells you, you know, how to love her. So uh, what I've done, this guy said, is I've asked my wife to step up here and just share a little bit from a woman's perspective what it means for her husband to love her sacrificially, etc. And this man's wife got up to the, the platform, the podium, and the first thing that I noticed was she was wearing a hat. And it was obvious that it wasn't a hat that was just sort of, I mean, this looked like a Kentucky Derby hat almost, you know, and it wasn't the Kentucky Derby. And so it stood out. It wasn't ostentatious, but it just was obvious it wasn't really part of her attire. 
And this woman got up there and she said, man, I feel very awkward to do this, to address you and share this, but my husband asked me to. And so, uh, in cooperation with my husband, he's asked me to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to do it, but, I, but I, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood or misread here. I just would like to share from my heart what, you know, from a woman's perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as I sat there and listened to her, and by the way, she did a tremendous job, I thought, you know what? I think I know why she's wearing that hat. I think her take on 1 Corinthians 11, or her and her husband's take, is the same take I have, is that because he asked her to get up and do just a part of that message, and then he came up and, and finished the last 20 minutes or whatever, but I think what was going on is because he asked her to get up and address that group of men, she did not want to be misunderstood that she was in any way uh, going against God's authority structure within the church and, and not trying to usurp the authority of her husband or male leadership or any of that, but in humility and in graciousness, she did a tremendous job just sharing for a few minutes, and I think she was wearing a symbol of authority on her head, to use Paul's exact wording, because she was basically sharing with men scriptural insights on how a husband can love his wife. Now, that, that doesn't prove that that's what this passage is saying. I'm only relaying the, the story because it was the only time in my entire life where I've seen what I think 1 Corinthians 11 is describing practiced. And I thought it was practiced very well, very properly, and, and, it, and it was powerful because this godly, gracious, humble woman, even just in her demeanor, was showing a submission to God's pattern, a submission to her husband, and a submission to male leadership uh, and yet, uh, the Lord really spoke through her to us men and uh, what she shared. So that, that's my take on 1 Corinthians 11. Again, it's the minority view. You can study it. Uh, if you take the cultural view, just take into account that Paul's reasons for here. Uh, he says because of the angels. He talks about the order of creation. So you have a hard time dismissing this as cultural because creation has nothing to do with culture. Angels have nothing to do with culture. The reasons Paul gives for following this have nothing to do with culture. Uh, so wrestle with it. It's a tough passage. I acknowledge that. Those who hold a different view, I by no means look down upon. Uh, but it's just, since I was asked, that's what I think the passage is saying. All right, next question says this. Uh, when Nebuchadnezzar ordered everyone to bow down to the image of gold, why was Daniel not with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Wouldn't he have also not bowed down? And it's a great question you ask, and the answer is you are certainly right. There's no way Daniel would have bowed down. We know that because in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself with the king's portion. He had already purposed he was not going to compromise being a captive in Babylon. And in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, that was the basis for the gold image of chapter 3, uh, Daniel is brought in and he tells this, the interpretation of that, which would not have been popular with King Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel didn't shy away from speaking the truth. So he's already shown on two occasions he's not going to compromise. He's not going to bow down. He's not going to give way. He's not going to be a, a man pleaser, but a God pleaser. So you're absolutely right. There's no way he would have bowed down. Still doesn't answer the question. No one can answer the question. Uh, where was Daniel? Uh, as that, when I preached through Daniel years ago, reading various commentators, some suggestions were that Daniel was not even in the country. He was off on the king's business. He certainly was one of the high officials. It's speculation. It's just uh, um, 
possibility, plausible? Uh, we don't know. But what we do know about Daniel and his character from the entire book, chapter 6, of course, when the law of the Medes and Persians is established, that you can't pray, he prayed anyway. Daniel did not bow down to the image. Where he was, we don't know. The text just doesn't tell us. Instead, it shines the spotlight on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, next question. This looks like the handwriting of a youngster. What were you doing in England? Well, uh, I was in England last Sunday, uh, and uh, I had a, a, an appointment with the royal family to see the new little baby, so that's why I was there. <laughs> no, that's not at all why I was there. Uh, no, actually, uh, I was there uh, for the uh, great privilege and opportunity, uh, honor to uh, officiate or partially officiate a wedding uh, for a, um, a couple that, well, they're going to be in our church here at the end of this week. The, the young man is from here, graduate of Bozeman High, graduate of MSU a few years ago, and he uh, went on uh, to teach English in Italy, Japan, uh, Thailand, all over teaching English. He met this gal from England who was doing the same thing, began to be interested in her. Uh, she came over here to visit him two or three years ago in the summer. I can still remember it because I knew him, and they were sitting right down here in the front row. And I didn't know this till this Christmas when she came to my office, the two of them, to share with me and asked me to come to England to participate in the wedding. She said, at the end of one of the services, when I was here that summer visiting, I was right down here, and I gave my life to Christ. And uh, so she said, Pastor Brian, would you come to England? That's where she grew up. This, the, the wedding was in her village, and it was a small village in northern England. And uh, she said, would you come over? Uh, none of my family are believers. And I, I, in, in uh, weddings in England, they don't give any type of devotional or message. They just do the vows, the rings, she said. And, and, and we want there to be some kind of even just a little 10-minute gospel message about the cross and, and Christ and, and the center of marriage. And none of my family knows the Lord, so would you please come over and do that? And I said it would be a privilege and honor. So uh, that's what I did. I went to England to officiate, uh, partially officiate. I couldn't do all of the wedding because of the laws of, of England. Uh, you have to be ordained clergy in the Church of England to actually pronounce, pronounce someone husband and wife. So the local vicar of the church there participated also and actually did the pronouncing and signing, but uh, I um, participated in, and officiated in the wedding. So that's what I was doing. A first for me to go all the way to England to do a wedding, but it was really uh, a great, great time. All right, next question says this. Uh, in John fifteen thirteen, Jesus says that the greatest display of love is to lay down one's life for his friends. You remember that statement, John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life. But Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were sinners, and then later the, the passage says we were his enemies. So how does this fit together? Good question, valid question. And I think the answer is this. In John 15, 13, Jesus was primarily, though not exclusively, primarily referring to his disciples who had become his friends. And he was telling them he was going to lay down his life for them. Now, by extension, we could say the same thing because Jesus laid down his life for us. But what the emphasis of John 15 is relational. Relationally, you know, Jesus is called in the Gospels a friend of sinners. This is why they criticized him because he was friendly toward uh, tax collectors. Uh, he was friendly toward uh, harlots. Uh, he, he prostitutes. I mean, uh, the, the the religious 
uh, mucky mucks of his day really looked down on him because he would spend time. He would go to a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee and choose that occasion to perform his first miracle. Uh, so he was a friend of sinners. That's relational. But Romans 5 is describing our position. It's positional. Our position before God because of our sin is one of enmity. And our position before God, it's not, not only enmity, but, but it is, that's the word Paul uses, we were enemies. Positionally, there was animosity between us and God. That may not have been emotional. In other words, before you were a Christian, you, were a Christian, you may not have had any emotional animosity toward God. Now, some do. They shake their fist at God. They're resentful, bitter. But some people just ignore God. They, there's, but, but positionally, they are enemies. So when Paul talks about us being enemies, don't read it in some emotional way or even necessarily relational way, but our positional standing before God prior to salvation is there is enmity, there is hostility, and we are enemies. So there's, there's really no contradiction between the two, but, but describing two different facets or aspects. All right, 1 Kings 19. Let's go back into Hebrew Scripture. 1 Kings 19. First Kings 19, verse 15. This is uh, after the story. You may remember chapter 18, the famous story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He defeats the prophets of Baal and so forth. And then Jezebel says she's going to uh, execute him. And he runs and he goes south and he goes all the way down, all the way down into the southern part of Israel and down to the mountain of God, called by several names in Scripture, Horeb in this passage, uh, and uh, it's the place where God uh, called Moses up to receive the law of God, called by Mount Sinai, other names. So he's all the way down there. And then God meets him there. And after that, he is told that he needs to go back. He needs to go back up north where he came from. This is a long way, by the way. And uh, then verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahalah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal. Now, here's the question. This is another really good one. I appreciate the insight on, uh, on so many of you when you ask these questions. Why would a prophet of God, and let me even expand that, why would a prophet of the God of Israel or a prophet from Israel anoint a king from Aram or Syria, a country other than Israel? That is a really good question. And here's the answer. I don't know that anybody knows. I really don't. In fact, it's funny you asked this question because back in March when I was over in Israel, and in fact a year ago, uh, just sitting on the bus as we, we travel around Israel, uh, the, the guide that I line up uh, from Israel there, a Jewish man, um, we have discussions about a variety of things. This issue came up. He's writing a, he's writing a 300 and some page on the prophets of Israel and he asked me if I would be a partial editor to read some of it. And I said, I'd be honored to do that. I'd love to read your stuff and hear 
what you have to, to say about those. But in the process, he said, some of the issues I'm wrestling with on the prophets of Israel, one is this very question. He says, I have, I have not been able to find an answer on why a prophet of Israel, uh, just from the northern kingdom of Israel, not even Judah, not even the, the united kingdom of Israel and Judah, just the northern kingdom, what authority does he have to anoint a king up in Syria, Damascus? And he said, I don't know the answer to that. Brian, do you know the answer to that? I said, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, when you find out, let me know. If I find out, I'll let you know. We don't know. Here's one possible, again, it's just speculation. It is possible that this was similar to uh, some other anointings in, in the Hebrew Scripture. It was a private anointing, not some big public ceremony, not something that would have been recognized by the people, but maybe God sent him there to tell Haziel, listen, the God of Israel has appointed and determined that you are going to be the next king of Aram, or depending on your translation, Syria, Damascus, etc. Because it is clear in this text that the reason why God wanted him to be king is because by the end of this string that is mentioned here, Baal worship was basically wiped out. And that is historically what happened, what unfolded. So God was going to see that this man was king. So it's possible, this is just speculation on my part, that he traveled up there, met with the king, and said, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is determined you'll be the next king. I will anoint you as such, even though his people may not have recognized that or even known it had taken place. But he did become the next king, end up becoming king, and he fulfilled the plan of God and carried it out. Though we don't really have any evidence he was a believer in the God of Israel, a follower of the God of Israel, but it is very clear that Elijah was told to go anoint him king. And it's a very good question and one that uh, I, I've been pondering for a few months now, interacting with this, this Israeli guide. And um, I even this afternoon thought, well, I'll do some research, grab some, t some resources and, and read and see if I can find it. Nothing, nothing I read touched on that. Commentaries, I grabbed some commentaries on First Kings. Nothing, no one touched on it. I don't know that anyone really has an answer. Uh, next, next question says this. Um, it says, our pastors do so much for us during the week, and then their weekends are often filled with church activities. Have we as a church ever considered giving our pastors two designated days off each week to spend with their families? Well, that's, um, uh, well, I don't know what kind of question you call it. It's a logistical question. I would just say this. Uh, if you have, you'd like to discuss that type of thing with our leadership, just catch some of the el one of the elders, talk to them, etc. Uh, our elders, our, our, our lay elders, are the the shepherds that work in conjunction with our personnel committee to put together policies. So, if you have a concern there, uh, I don't. I think I can speak for us as staff that we don't have a concern there. But if you have a concern there, you could talk with some of those other men. It removes the awkwardness of talking to us about it. So you can talk with some of the lay elders, personnel committee, etc. Uh, next question says this. Um, I think this is from a youngster. I'm not sure. It says, if Song of Solomon... Well, let's turn to Song of Solomon. Some of you are saying, yay, yay, Song of Solomon. We get to go there. Well, we're not going to read it. We're not going to study it. Um, but the question is this. Uh, if Song of Solomon and Song of Songs are the same book, why is it called Song of Songs in the NIV and Song of Solomon in the New King James Version? Well, the answer to that question comes from the opening verse of the book, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 
And so, just so that you understand, the, just like the chapter divisions in the Bible and the verse divisions in the Bible, the titles in the Bible are not inspired. They're just helpful for us. I mean, can you imagine having no titles and you're trying to tell someone to find a verse in Isaiah, but you don't have any title to the book? So the books are given logical titles. I mean, Matthew's gospel is called the gospel of Matthew. And Mark's is called the gospel of Mark. Paul's letter to the Romans is called Romans. But I'm, I'm confident that John, the apostle John, did not call his letter to the elect lady Second John or Third John. He would, not, he, would, he would not even known what that meant. We call it 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, because that's the order that it occurs. And so there's nothing inspired about these. The NIV just goes with the opening line, the Song of Songs, the New King James Version, which is Solomon's, the Song of Solomon. Uh, but this, this distinction you will find in other places. For example, there are some people that if you said, uh, we're going to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, they would have no clue what book in the Bible you're talking about. Because that title actually comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And I don't know if it's the majority, that, if it'd be safe to say the majority, but a large portion of people know that book, not by Ecclesiastes, but by a title some of you may not even recognize, but it's called Kohelet. And so that would be the title by which they know what we call Ecclesiastes. Also, in Hebrew Scripture, they don't have what we have 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. They have Kings, Chronicles. They don't have the 1st and 2nd. Not only that, their order is way different. Ours goes from Genesis to Malachi. Theirs goes from Genesis to what we would call 2nd Chronicles. That's the last book in the Hebrew Bible, but uh, it's not that the, all the other books are left out. They're just placed earlier in more of a logical order. So this, this kind of thing can be a little bit confusing sometimes. And so this youngster is wondering, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, why? Same book called, uh, it's just preference. Uh, translators, NIV, stuck the title of Song of Songs. New King James, Song of Solomon. I think Song of Solomon even is the title that goes back probably to the 1611 uh, authorized version, which we often call the King James Version. But some others don't call it by that name. They call it Song of Songs. Okay, last question of the night. If a person commits a sin in a dream, for example, uh, an immoral sin or a sin of anger, will he, she be held responsible for that on judgment day? In other words, a believer losing reward or an unbeliever being judged for that sin. Um, there's... There's nothing specifically in Scripture that would address this issue, but there are things in Scripture that would address this issue. Let me explain what I mean. There's, there's nothing in Scripture that can tell you why you dream what you dream much of the time. Now, some of the time you know. I mean, in other words, if you go to a different culture and you spend a day in another culture, I've done this so many times by going all over the world, that night I dream about that culture. I mean, it's just, you know, the first time I went to Israel, I was in the old city. That night I was in the old city all night. I mean, it was just, you know, the, the narrow streets and the, the, all the vendors and all of that, you know. So sometimes your mind is just overloaded with something and that's what you dream. But sometimes, surely, Surely you know that your dreams are completely random. 
Right? Like, I mean, I, maybe I'll wake up and say, I haven't had this one, but I'll say, man, honey, I had a weirdest dream last night. I was sitting in an auditorium, and Ronald Reagan was giving a speech, and I stood up and yelled at him, or something like that. You know, where did that come from? You know, I hadn't even been thinking about Ronald Reagan, and I liked him as a president. Why would I yell at him in his speech? So, you know, that makes no sense, but you, you have those kinds of things. I have those kinds of things. I don't think it's random dreams that we ought to be concerned about, other than other than our response to our dream, if it's sinful, could be an issue. In other words, if you have an immoral dream and then you wake up and you contemplate that and you think on that, that's wrong. That's thinking on the wrong thing. If you have a dream about someone that you don't like and you murdered the person or hurt them, that ought to raise a flag in your mind. Why did I dream that? That must really be something I am ruminating on in my heart. And so that's why I say that in one sense, you could say that a random dream, the, the Bible wouldn't even address it, it's irrelevant. But in another sense, there could be some issues. So that your response to the dream, if it's something sinful, I think a godly response would be, Lord, I don't ever want to do that. I don't know why I dream that. I don't know why I, you know, you wake up and you, you, you dream that you murdered your fifth grade math teacher that you loved in school or something. So a proper response would be, Lord, I would never want to get so angry, so bitter, so resentful that I would have murderous anger toward anyone. That would be a godly response. If you have an immoral dream, a godly response is, Lord, I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to be immoral. So protect me. Grant me the grace that I, I won't. And it could raise the question in your mind again. Is, there, is this something I'm thinking on so much? I'm, I'm, I have so much anger towards someone and that's why I dream that I'm hurting them and I enjoy that? Or am I contemplating wrong thoughts and that has prompted an immoral dream? Well, then it would be an issue. Then it would be a hard issue that it would need to be dealt with before the Lord. But a random dream, uh, we, we still don't know why we have dreams that we have studies done on it. There just aren't explanations for all of it. Just if, if it's something like that, it's sort of like if you're, you know, you're, uh, uh, if something is just pushed upon you, you're, you're going down the street and all of a sudden someone, uh, you know, says something or shows you something or does something that you have no interest in, but you know it's an awful thing, a godly response is say, I don't want anything to do with that. So response is important. Uh, motivation can be an issue of, of dreams. But if it's your confidence ran, random, just denounce it before the Lord. And don't, don't uh, you know, there's, there's no virtue in just browbeating yourself in guilt. Oh, I can't figure out why. You know, there must be something awful about me that I would have such a dream. Just say, Lord, I don't want anything to do with it. And I want to be clean before you and move forward. All right. Great questions. Thanks for turning those in. Lord willing, next month we'll have another Bible Q&A. Remember, after I close in prayer... Uh, International Harvesters, Nathan and Kaylee, are leaving us in about two weeks, maybe even less than that. Here's a chance to hear from them uh, as we're dismissed. So if you can stay for that over in the fireside room, uh, let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for our Lord's Day today, both this morning, this evening, uh, the opportunity to be with your people, to lift our voices in praise and adoration, the opportunity to look into your word and have it uh, instruct us and have it teach us and have it sh sharpen us and shape us and, and uh, instruct us. And uh, we pray, Father, that we would, even coming off this last question, that we would, we would deal, thing, deal with things on a heart level, not just sort of chop off branches, not 
deal with merely the fruit, but the root of the issue, so that whether it be in a dream or just in a response in our hearts, that we deal with things, look at things from a heart level, to make sure that we seek to have pure hearts before you. Because after all, your word tells us over and over again that you look at the heart. You don't merely look at our actions. You don't merely look at the externals. You look at the heart and what motivates us and what prompts us and what drives us. And so uh, we want to deal with things at that level as well, uh, not, not be external, pharisaical in our approach to the Christian life. So grant us that sensitivity to your spirit, to your word, uh, that we would see things, uh, things that maybe have been blind spots to us, things that we wouldn't just naturally see, but we, we want to develop a sensitivity to them in our lives to be pleasing to you, not just in our actions, but from a heart level. And so we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.